Welcome to this week's Unboxable Unstoppable podcast. I do talk about a few things related to trauma and early life difficulty in this podcast. So please, if that's something triggering for you, be careful and get help if you do. Uh, there's plenty of ways to do that, Lifeline being the main one in Australia. Also, there are a lot of books available to you if you want to research any of this more on my website, which is Soul Mama Hub, S-O-U-L-M-A-M-A-H-U-B dot com forward slash bookshelf so have a look around on there and you might find the help that uh, you need right now from one of those books they're my favorites there's not that many there Uh, take your pick follow your gut and i hope you enjoy this week's episode of the podcast thank you Well, hello, hello. How are you, my friends? I do love that I am talking to you and I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are, but I know that you're there and it's so lovely. (laughs) Um, So it's a beautiful sunny day here in Sydney and I've just had a fantastic conversation with an old friend who has been listening to this podcast. You know who you are. And um, It was such an interesting conversation because we reflected quite a bit. We've known each other for more than, well, almost 30 years, a bit more than 30 years, I'd say, which is remarkable. But um, she said she's been listening to the podcast so far and it's given her some really good insights into why we weren't close friends when we first met. And it was so interesting to talk to her because she was giving me her impression, which I'm not, I'm not completely surprised about, but her impressions of me as a younger person. And me as a younger person, as you would know if you've listened to this podcast before, had a lot going on. I had a lot going on. And the reason I had a lot going on is that I had inherited a fair amount of, well, I would say there was some epigenetic trauma, um, epigenetic being the coding, and this is not a, this is science, okay, it's not, it's not something woo-woo, but there is actually coding in our genes that's related to the emotion and the emotional experience of our forebears. Um, so anyone who comes from a line that experienced, say, for example, genocide like mine, um, can carry some pretty heavy genes for trauma. And it's not like they are just there, you know, hanging around. It's they're kind of triggered or not triggered by your environment and your experience. Like a lot of our genes, like genes that carried coding for certain diseases, um, say diabetes or celiac, some people may have that from birth. Some people it may happen later in life. And it may be that you have a genetic predisposition for that disease and then it's triggered by lifestyle elements or environmental elements. Um, it's a very interesting area of science that is quite new. It's quite new in terms of, as, as most genetic science is quite new, but very interesting. And um, I would love to know more about actually the First Nations perspective on this stuff. I'm sure there would be some understanding of it in First Nations medicine, but I don't know enough about that to talk about it. It's a good area for research potentially. Um, But anyway, I'm digressing as usual. (laughs) Uh, So what I was going to say was that the things that I had going on, including the, the trauma that I was carrying in my body and in my genes, I also had like the genetic trauma coming from, uh, from past generations. 
I also had some direct life experience of trauma and I'm talking about trauma here and and I'm going to do another podcast episode about this. There's a man called Dr. Gabor Mate who I've mentioned before already a couple of times and he's just made a film, well, it's recently come out called The Wisdom of Trauma. If you haven't watched it, I would say anyone who feels any little ding, ding, dings going on while I'm talking about this stuff, go and watch it because my goodness... It's a very powerful film and he's definitely a world-recognised expert in the area of trauma and trauma treatment and he particularly had a lot of experience working with people with addiction Um, and his whole foundation really is about asking questions and coming from a place of just compassion, absolute compassion and that these people that we often see, you know, homeless and drug addicted on the streets and we judge and we we sort of act as if it's a choice, um, often are not having that experience and often actually require a lot more compassion in order to heal than, than we give them, you know. So it's a great, it's a really great one. I know when I lived in Bath, I used to stop and speak to, there's quite a few homeless people in Bath that just live around the streets. And one of the things I loved about that was that people often, not only me, but others would sit down and have a chat with the homeless people of Bath and it was not uncommon to see them receiving food or being cared for and spoken to with respect and dignity and I just think that's so awesome um, and powerful and really important and I mean it's similar with our kids like the way that we speak to our kids is the way they will see themselves like that's just a well-known concept now I guess that that if we speak to them like they are magical, incredible, beautiful beings, and that's what they believe they are. Equally, if we speak to them as if they are annoying and taking up our time and we don't want them to or we judge them, they will feel shame and judgment and that's how they'll feel about themselves. That will become their inner dialogue. And this is something that I think until fairly recently was not that well known, certainly around divorce, like there was very little research around the effects of divorce on children prior to the 70s and 80s because there just wasn't a very common thing and um, it wasn't acknowledged as traumatic or damaging or powerful, you know. And I'm not I'm not saying this to judge anyone who gets divorced. I think divorce is sometimes a very good idea if you're in an unhappy relationship or an unsafe relationship. It's super important to leave that relationship and there's ways to do that that minimise the impact on children, certainly. And um, I just think it wasn't really understood that that was even a thing to worry about. So... The traumas that I've had have not been any big ticket items, but they have been definitely real. And for whatever reason, I grew up feeling like I wasn't really very worthy. And that was in direct dissonance and juxtaposed upon a sense that I was given, which was a more deliberate approach, I think, from my parents, which was that I was worthy and that I was loved because I was, I was definitely loved. And And I think often what happens is we can have these kind of dual lines of identity. And so for me, I had this kind of one line of identity, which was, you know, I went to a selective school, I did well at school, I had friends, I, you know, was perceived as, I guess, fairly, I was fairly well liked at school, you know, I was nominated to be a prefect because I kind of got along with everybody. But I was never like amazing at anything, but I just, you know, did pretty well. And I did pretty well at sport and I did pretty well at dance and I did pretty well at school and I had a reasonably good sort of group of friends. But then when I hit about 17, 18, it all kind of unraveled a bit. And I think what happened was that with maturity and with some further, so both of my parents had a second divorce. And I think 
that triggered and also falling in love can be a trigger as well. If you've had early life trauma around separation from by your parents, you can be triggered when the first time you fall in love. There's research around that as well. And um, so all of I had this kind of confluence of things that occurred all at the same time, um, going to university, leaving the nest, two divorces, one from each parent, um, exposure to drugs and alcohol, also falling in love for the first time, having my first heartbreak, all of those things kind of combined to just be completely overwhelming. And so at that point in time, I had this like half of me was this sort of successful, you know, potentially could go to university, potentially could be successful in life and intelligent enough, you know, um, reasonably attractive, like attractive enough, you know, all those things that I had, you know, good a good sort of set of cards in my hand. But then on the other hand, my inner world was completely like just imploding. I had zero, really zero deep self-worth, you know, and um, I'd had a couple of adverse experiences that I also hadn't treated very seriously, like I was almost raped and I managed to escape, but I never received any treatment for that. I had quite a few adverse experiences, you know, when I was sort of partying the year after school before uni and there was some pretty heavy stuff going on and there was this massive just combination of small but pervasive factors that ended up leaving me just a prime candidate for addiction and that's what ended up emerging was was addiction and um and you know abusive relationships but before that and what was really interesting talking to my friend today was that i really had no idea how messed up i was you know like i kind of just thought that the world was hard and I'd had some difficult things happen to me and my parents were sort of to blame and the world was sort of to blame and if I wasn't intimate with people if I didn't have intimate friends like I didn't really I wasn't really capable of intimate friendships and I essentially thought that that was because of the people not because of me like I genuinely believed that I was fine and that's the really slippery and weird thing about shame and often trauma is that the way that our body and mind works is that we hide it from ourselves it's it's too big for us to admit or accept and so we hide it away you know we go that part of us that that seeks to protect us emotionally and physiologically as well because these I mean these things can be life-threatening these things can literally lead to suicide addiction you know, that, that it is well known now there is a, an early life study about difficulty in early life, which shows very definitively it was a very wide-ranging study. Happy to provide it if anyone wants to email me about it. But there's this absolutely amazing study that, that explains the link, the very direct link between early life difficulty and, and adverse outcomes later in life. And it's really, really pervasive. And so, I mean, I had no idea any of this was going on. So I literally just thought that people weren't being very nice to me and I didn't know why. But at the time, like I was scared to be friends with women because I'd had some really weird experiences with my friends who were girls at a girls' school and with my mum as well. My mum had been pretty unavailable. She'd been going through her own difficulty and so she had really struggled to to be able to be fully present. She'd done a she'd tried pretty hard, but she had a, she was up against it herself in a difficult situation financially and in her relationship so she was unable to really you know fully 100% support me at a time when I kind of probably needed it so so for all these confluence of factors I ended up in a really vulnerable position but I had no idea that I was and this is the thing so 
what I guess I want to say, and this is a message you're going to hear repeatedly throughout this podcast. (laughs) Sorry, but it's going to come at you a few different ways. We need to rebuild our compassion. We need to remember that really, if someone is giving you a super hard time, the likelihood is that they are having a super hard time. Now, that doesn't mean you go and rescue the world. It doesn't mean you allow yourself to be abused. It doesn't mean you allow yourself to compromise your own values or your own your own lines and, and boundaries, you know, around yourself for safety. That's not what I'm suggesting. I'm only suggesting that we change our viewing of these things, that we maybe allow ourselves to reframe a little bit when we see someone who's really behaving in a terrible way and and really do the best we can to approach that situation with more compassion. And I, and I say this because I know myself, just even in a micro level in my own family, if my child is having a really hard time and they're, you know, screaming and yelling and pounding the floor with fists and feet, I mean, that doesn't happen so much, so much, so more because anymore because they're kind of older. But, but it's still. I mean, they, my four-year-old can still have a tantrum, and it really takes a lot to, to approach that tantrum with compassion. But my goodness, it makes a huge difference. I mean, it instantly neutralizes it. My experience with my four-year-old is that when I'm busy, like making dinner, and he's screaming at me, and I say, "Please, can you stop screaming?" That's completely useless. But if I can take a moment to come down to his level, look him in the eye and say, what's going on for you, my love? It looks like you're having a bit of a hard time. It really, it changes everything. If he can hear me, if he's actually just a tiny bit able enough to hear me, that it changes everything. And then he says, I just need a cuddle. Or he often will say, I just need a cuddle. And that's beautiful. You know, it's like heart melting that really he was saying, I need you. And in the only way that he knew he could. And that has massive ramifications, even for <laughs> ramifications, even for teens, actually. Like it's often, I think we often overlook the way that teenagers really need their mums and dads and they're often feeling quite lost and overwhelmed, but there's no way they can express that because everything in them is telling them to become independent, you know, and they don't have any real access to their frontal lobe anyway. So, I mean, that sort of 12 to 14-year-old age in boys, that's what I've experienced with my older son and it's so challenging and he was pretty good, you know, but there were moments where he couldn't, he just couldn't cope and he wasn't able to ask for what he needed. And if we can approach those difficult moments in our own family or even in our relationships with our partners or with our families of origin with more compassion, with greater compassion and with greater love, greater contact with love, it is absolutely transformative. Now, it's not always that simple, I acknowledge there may be other factors at play. And if there are, well, then, you know, they need treatment and they need extra help and seek professional help. And hopefully that is available to you because I know that there are certain things that we cannot overcome with love and compassion. But all I'm saying is that even if we can't overcome with love and compassion, it certainly helps. It certainly helps. And it's super cliched, I know, to say it, but my goodness, If we can remember the power of that, the simple power of actually coming from our hearts a little more, it's really incredible what that can do to a family system. So I've gotten a bit off track as usual, but but I will say this. I want you to know that if you are 
feeling like you're not 100% yourself, you're not able to be yourself, or maybe you get that sense that there's something at work beneath the surface. If you make a decision to do whatever it takes, do you say to yourself, I am willing to do whatever it takes to work this out. And I'm willing to do whatever it takes to discover what I need to heal from this. You're on the right track. It's, it's a good direction to take. That's certainly what worked for me. And it took years and it took a lot of love and support from those around me. The very same people who I'd had difficulties with earlier in my life have ended up being my greatest supports. And then fortunately, I've met people since then who don't even know me as the person I used to be. <laughs> lucky for them, talking about you, my husband. Lucky for him. And lucky for me as well, of course, because I actually get to experience incredible support. And support is is an inc- just so deeply life-changing when you can find the support that you need uh, to become who you authentically are. And we know from the work of Dr Gabor Mate and the studies I've referred to earlier in this podcast that being authentically who we are is a human need. Uh, it's something that we absolutely require to be able to feel okay in our lives. So I'll talk again in another podcast about the film, The Wisdom of Trauma, that Gabo Mate has made because that that is its own subject and its own theme and something that requires and deserves uh, its own episode. In the meantime, I do really hope that in some way this has been helpful and has allowed you some spaciousness and a little bit of a deep breath out if you're having a hard time or even if you're not, if you know someone who is if your children require a little bit more compassion from you, I hope this helps you do that because I think it's a really powerful thing and it is a way that we can change the patterns that we've been a part of previously on a kind of deeper, bigger level of humanity to actually become a little bit better connected and more compassionate with each other. And um, it's certainly not a bad thing to do. So in some small way, this is what the podcast is all about, is about getting out of our little boxes and getting away from the things that stop us so that we can be fully and totally ourselves. So that is my wish for you today again and with lots of love always, uh, please do share this podcast and please do review it if you love it so that more people can hear it because I'm on this big mission to spread these messages that I do believe are quite powerful and something we really need to keep in touch with um, all the time. Lots of love. Thank you. Bye.